good morning. Um, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we, if you've been following along, are nearing the end of our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are finishing our series on redefining the good life next week. And so potentially you know where we are this week as we jump in. But first, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and what, what happened? Very good. And then Jill came tumbling after. Okay. Uh, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. This is awesome. Um, ring around the rosies. I, I hope they know this. Ring around the rosy. Pocket full of posies. What's the next? Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And my, potentially my favorite. Um, rock of I, baby, on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks... The cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle, and all. Well done. This is awesome. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, as we were saying those together, like, I had zero emotional reaction to them. And not zero emotional reaction to the sense of, like, I heard these when I was a kid, and they were really powerful because my children sang, my, my parents sang them to me as a child. No. Emotional reaction because, do you know what we were just saying? Like, Jack falls down the hill and splits his head open. And then his, I think, sister Jill follows shortly thereafter. Humpty Dumpty experiences this uh, irreparable damage to himself to where the experts of the land can't fix him. And Ring Around the Rosies, it's been a little debated, but uh, it's believed to be a reenactment of the Black Plague, <laughs> where the, the re rosy rings are like the symptoms and the posies are the medicine, and they don't work because what's the solution? Burn the bodies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And then imagine an infant who you are rocking to sleep with this phrase, and they start picturing. Imagine they're picturing what's going on. Oh, this is beautiful. I'm high up in a tree, and the branch is breaking, and I'm plummeting to the earth. <laughs> Good night. It's like, <laughs> why don't these affect us more? Because familiarity seems to breed disconnection. Familiarity breeds apathy. And my prayer this morning, as we step into the Gospel of Mark, and we read the story of Jesus' death, no matter how many times you have heard it, that it would not breed disconnection, and it would not breed apathy. My prayer as we step into this this morning, that you would allow yourself to hear the story again, like for the first time. That you would insert yourself into the scene that you would imagine Jesus up on the cross, that you would allow yourself to, to, to be entering into what's going on and hearing what's going on and seeing the people around and that it would not be a familiar story in that regard. And so, let me invite you, as we step into this story, hear and look upon Jesus with new eyes as we read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness uh, over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that has been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I found it interesting in reading this passage um, that, I don't know if you do this, but I've heard the multiple gospel accounts many times, and so I start inserting information to fill the picture out for me. But if you listen to what we read, Mark, Mark is kind of interesting in the things that he chooses to put in there. Uh, in fact, if you look at it, the story that is about the death of Jesus, like, isn't really have Jesus in there that much. Like, we only hear two things from him, that he cries out to God and that he breathes his last. The rest of the story is actually about the people around Jesus. It's about their reactions, their responses, how they are seeing what's going on and what is going on inside of them. And so today, as we step into it, we're going to study these people's reactions, their responses. And oddly enough, people who weren't even that close to Jesus. But in studying this, we're going to see three things. One, Jesus did die. Two, Jesus is the Son of God. And three, the way you respond to that matters. Jesus did die. He is the Son of God. And how you respond to that matters. So this first point, Jesus did die. This might uh, not seem like a really significant thing to talk about. People die after all, right? Uh, it's what we do eventually. And, um, and, and, and to realize, especially after the weeks of what we've heard about his suffering and excruciating pain of what he went through and the shame, like it makes sense. This is the logical conclusion. But Mark spends a lot of time talking about what, that Jesus actually died if you look back at the text. In fact, in verse 37, it says he breathed his last. Two verses later, the centurion saw him breathe his last. The centurion, by the way, was the executioner responsible to confirm that Jesus actually did die. Like, his life depends on it. And then several verses later, we have a man named Joseph who asks for the body, who clearly saw him die and said, okay, I'm ready to take the body. And Pilate's like, there's no way he's already dead. It's his responsibility. His life was on the line. He has to confirm it. So he asks the centurion, who does in fact confirm it. Jesus is dead. The body is dead. So what does Pilate do? He says, sure, Joseph, you can have the corpse, is the literal word. Then Joseph takes it and wraps it up and puts it in a tomb, which is what you do with dead bodies, not living ones that are really sick. And then lastly, you see the women in verse 47 say that they saw where the body was laid. 
Mark spent a ton of time emphasizing the fact that Jesus died. Why? Because it really, it really mattered to Mark, and it really matters to us, so much so that if he didn't, we're in a lot of trouble. Now, there's a man named uh, Lee Strobel, who you might be familiar with. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and uh, he was an atheistic journalist uh, in Chicago. He was legally trained, uh, and he, basically his life was being turned upside down by Christianity, and he was like, that's it. I'm done with this. I'm going to disprove Christianity once and for all. And he's like, I've got enough skills. I'm an investigative reporter. I know how to do this. And so he goes out trying to find a way to disprove Christianity. And his premise is, if he can disprove the resurrection, that's like the linchpin that he can disprove Christianity, which I would argue is a good premise, if you can do it. So what he does is he gets to work, and he starts looking to say, okay, if I can prove that he didn't die, then there is no resurrection, and therefore this thing is a big false following. So he gets to work, and he starts doing some studying, and he realizes that, okay, this idea of a swoon theory has been proposed before. If Jesus was only resuscitated and not resurrected, then Christianity is gone. But unfortunately, it became an impossible task. Because as you saw in Mark, Mark spent a lot of time talking about that. And in the Gospels, as well as all throughout other forms of uh, writing outside of Scripture, there is so much evidence pointing to the fact that Jesus actually died that the peer-reviewed Journal of American Medical Association concluded in their resource that clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. The gospel writer Luke tells us that they inserted a spear into his side and when water and blood poured out, like, that's proof. Like, he was dead. There was no potential maybe he wasn't at that point. Even an atheistic New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludemann, says that the execution of Jesus is indisputable. Jesus, the historical man who lived and breathed and walked this earth, died on the cross that day. It was a big deal to Mark, and it should be a big deal to us to realize that Jesus did, in fact, die. But why? I mean, why is it so important that we realize the fact that he actually did die? And so to do that, we have to kind of step back a little bit to the Old Testament and talk about animal sacrifice. Now, animal sacrifice uh, is not, as some people believe, uh, like an appeasing of the volatile, angry gods. That's not what it is. In fact, Animal sacrifice, the first animal sacrifice in Scripture was done by God in Genesis 3. You see, in Genesis 3 is the fall, Adam and Eve sin, and what happens is uh, because of the sin, God explains the consequences to them, and then he looks at them and he realizes that he needs to cover them, and so what does he do? In Genesis 3, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. From the very beginning, God instituted the use of animal sacrifice as a way of covering and atoning for sin. We read about Abel and Noah and Abraham. Very early on in the Bible, we see sacrifice as a part of the ritual of following God. And, and even Job, the book of Job has, um, it was believed to be written around the same time as Abraham. And it says in Job 1.5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings, sacrifices, according to the number of them all. For Job said... It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, 
just because animal sacrifice has been done for a long, long time, since the very beginning, just because we've always done it that way, isn't a good reason, right? And you might even be asking, I, don't, I just don't get it. Why does one bad thing, and we'll agree sin's bad, like it's really, really bad, why does one bad thing necessitate another bad thing, like killing an animal? How do two wrongs make a right? It's a great question, because that's not actually how it works. First of all, we're not actually putting the weight and gravity on how bad sin actually is, and we're not putting the understanding of what sacrifice actually does. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible Project, um, but the people who put this on are are amazing, and I love the work that they've done. Um, But uh, Tim Mackey had said, um, uh, and Aaron Sullivan, in Leviticus, human sin is an act that vandalizes, infects, and defiles God's good world. This idea is rooted in the depiction of human rebellion found in Genesis uh, 3 through 11. Sorry, that's wrong. Genesis 3, the fall happens. What happens between Genesis 3 and 11? I mean, we have some horrible stuff going on in the world, so much so that God has to wipe it out in Noah a few chapters later. And then you have the Tower of Babel, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Sin uh, is destructive and pervasive and takes over everything in God's world the minute it enters the world. Sin results in fractured relationships that lead to power struggles, that then lead to violence and widespread systemic evil. All of this has a corrosive or defiling effect, not only on the wrongdoer, but the entire community. Sin, at its core, leaves a wake of destruction and devastation behind it. Sin is not just about the wrong thing that I do, Matt talked about this last week. It's about the reality that I'm the kind of person that does that. I'm the kind of person that allows whatever sin that sin is to make that decision to choose that. I had a conversation with um, my former college roommate. Um, uh, We we don't talk often, but we talk every so often. And I've known him half my life, which is kind of crazy to think about. And we've been through a lot of things together, namely college. And for those of you, if you're like me, college was an interesting time. And um, we chose to do some interesting things like throw a television off the roof of our dorm to see what would happen when it crashed on the floor on the ground below us. It blows up, by the way. Uh, we, we lit a stuffed animal on fire and threw it out the window to see what would happen when it landed in the snow below. It melted the snow pretty quickly. Um, so we were discovering things and learning things along the way. And you might say that, yeah, weird and destructive. I went to a Christian college, so we had to make up new ways of being fun. Um, but there were other things that we chose to do that were, I thought, I think we would actually view as less destructive. Um, in the dining hall, we would fill up uh, bottles of milk and take them back to our room so that we didn't have to buy milk at the grocery store because it was just, it was easier. And they're going to throw it away later anyway, so. Or we would take, uh, we would buy breakfast, but then make lunch and put it in our book bag and take it with us so that we didn't have to worry about coming back later. It was just, it was easier that way. Or we had to, um, or we chose to like take fruit or dessert out with us or or we would choose to not come home when we were supposed to be back at the dorms, again, Christian college. Um, or we had the uh, decision to, um, when we were 21, like, we weren't supposed to drink when we were at campus there, but we would, we would leave and, and, and drink together. And my roommate said the most impressive thing upon my heart, which I was not really considering at the time, but he said, why did we think that the decisions that we were making had no impact on the people that we were becoming? Why did I think that the things that I was choosing to do back when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old had no bearing on who I would become? You see, Satan wanted to convince us, and I believe he convinced me, that my sin didn't affect other people. 
That the decisions I make behind closed doors or maybe away from other people or maybe with a small group of people who understand the liberties of Christianity, that it's not actually affecting my heart. It's not rewiring me in a certain way. It's not shaping me to believe that ultimately I don't need God. I can take care of myself. I might have to bend the rules a little bit, but as long as no one finds out, that's okay. That I can live one way on the outside, but be one way on the inside. And as long as those two never cross and no one finds out, it's all okay. And when, I, when he, my friend said this to me, it wrecked me for days. I was spinning, reflecting on all the decisions that I had made, all the things that we had done together, all the lighthearted, fun things and simple things that we thought weren't a big deal, and realizing like, oh my gosh, that's sin. That's what sin does. It seems small. It seems insignificant. Satan wants you to believe it doesn't matter. It's only impacting you. But the reality is, as I began to think of the ways in which now I look back and I'm, I'm someone who's blame shifting all the time, who's looking for other people to blame when, they, when things, I don't want to be responsible for things. I'm looking for finding ways to uh, make it not a big deal or think that my sin won't impact other people. But the reality is, is that it does. And it's impacted my family. And it's impacted my community. And it's impacted my church because I am the type of person that has chosen to do those things. And it's re- rewired my heart to believe that I can get away with it, and it's not a big deal. And the truth of the matter is, it, it is a big deal. Sin is a big deal, and it's not an isolated event. It is pervasive into your heart, and that's why when God used sacrifice, he wanted to show people. The reason that we, he used animal sacrifice was for a few reasons. One of them was, it's just plain gross. Like, we don't, thank goodness we don't have to do this, but they would take the animal, this pure, innocent animal, and slit its throat to where the blood would drain out of the body. God wanted them to look at and see, like, that's how bad sin is. See, in Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. All the way back to Genesis 3, we saw that sin led to death. When sin entered the world, death happened immediately. That's what the weight of sin is. It's the cost of sin is death. And so God said, okay, Hebrews 9, 22 says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So by recognizing the weight of sin, the significance of sin, we see that it leads to death. It must have death. But it's not just a symbol, a visceral symbol. It's actually a substitute as well. Because the animal, because I was supposed to die because of my sin, the animal now takes on that substitution. And the animal becomes the death. Now, again, that's pretty horrible and a little weighty and probably disturbing. But what I think is so amazing about this is it doesn't stop there. Yes, there needs to be payment for sin, but God used something really beautiful in the midst of this to paint the picture of what he's also doing. And in Leviticus 17, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the, sorry, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, when, when, when the priest would make a sacrifice, and they would do this all the time, when the priest would make a sacrifice, the blood would drain out, the animal would die, which would show you, like, that's how grotesque sin is. And he would take your place. But then what the priest would do is he would sprinkle the blood because life is in the blood. And what he was doing is he was symbolizing the sacrifice that was made was actually a cleaning agent, a detergent. Life cleans death. It's not just that God takes the sin record away from it, but he actually has to start undoing the effects of sin and bringing life to areas where there was death. And what this shows us, I pray, 
is I pray that it shows us, one, that sin is incredibly serious and way more destructive than we think it is. But two, God is way more in love with us and wants so desperately to be in communion with us that he would go to great lengths for it. Exodus 20, um, sorry, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. I love the way it says it here. Um, it says, The Lord passed before them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. Like, he loves to forgive you. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This isn't God's consequence or curse for sin. It's the reality of sin. Sin will lead, if not taken care of, if not cleansed, if not undone, if not addressed, it leads to the second and third and fourth generation of your family being impacted by it. If you if we don't see how bad sin actually is, it's pervasive. It takes over. It continues to move. But God loves us and wants so desperately to be in a relationship with us. Now, you might be wondering, why are we spending so much time? Mark doesn't talk about this at all. Well, the reason is, is because of what happens in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So back to sacrifices. The priests would make sacrifices all the time. But once a year, once a year, the high priest was allowed to enter the holy of holies, the most holy place. And the reason why he was only allowed to enter then was because the rest of the year, there was a thick veil, a curtain, that separated the holy place, the most holy place, from the rest of Israel. God's holiness is so dangerous to a sinful people that without that protection, we would all be crushed. But this veil, mind you, this curtain was about four inches thick, uh, 30 feet high, 60 feet wide, and Josephus, who was a historian in that day, said that if you attached horses to both sides of it, they couldn't pull it apart. Like, it is a thick, powerful, strong curtain. But when Jesus died, the next thing that happens is God rips the curtain in two and says, no more separation." Amen, right? And if we can grasp the weight and the power and the danger of sin and realize that God was looking at them and saying, like, you don't know how bad it is. I've got to stay away from you or you're going to die immediately. And then he says, as soon as his son died, no more. You can now enter into my presence. No more would the high priest have to go in once a year and make atonement for his family and himself and the nation of Israel. No more would, the, would Yom Kippur matter. It, they didn't, no more would sacrifices be done in the temple. No more. Because even though we see that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 10 says that in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. That would never happen. They knew, they knew that it wasn't the ultimate thing, which is why John, John the Baptist says in John 1, 29, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
the sins of the world. John saw it very early. Jesus came to be that ultimate sacrifice, to be the once and for all and forever sacrifice that no sacrifice would ever need to be made again. Guys, that's why he had to die. Because unless he's dead, the sacrifice doesn't work. There is no blood to atone and cleanse and make new and bring life to death. But the power of the blood is that it can come in and cleanse you and allow you to enter the Holy of Holies. But this really does beg the question, how is that even possible? I mean, why does one man's death take care of all of all the sin? If the nature of the grotesque sacrifice is that it's really that bad, how did one person do it? Well, that's a good point because he wasn't just man. Jesus was fully man, but he was God. He was the Son of God. In fact, if you look at Mark's gospel, if you look starting in chapter 1, verse 1, the first thing Mark says is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark starts, the first thing he says, he's like, I'm going to try to tell you guys that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you don't believe it, it's kind of crazy, it isn't until he is dead that the first uncoerced human in the Gospel of Mark looks and says, ah, he's the Son of God. Now in chapter 3, there are some demons who proclaim it. Uh, At the uh, baptism at the transfiguration, God says it. Peter says that you are the Christ. But Mark's entire purpose of writing this gospel is that you and I would see that Jesus is the Son of God, which is why his sacrifice can pay for everything, because it's the perfect, ultimate sacrifice. It took all the sin on him, and he was able to pay for all of it because he had never done a single thing wrong. And it's crazy that if Mark's entire purpose is to tell us that, that he waits for a Roman soldier, a Gentile, unfamiliar and unsympathetic to Jewish belief, who's probably by this point pretty hardened in his life. He's a centurion. He's over a hundred people, which means he's worked his way up the ranks, which means he's probably executed a lot of people. But something's different about this one. Because it said, as he stood looking at him and saw that in the way he breathed his last, in that way, truly this man, surely this man was the son of God. What did he see? I mean, try to, again, try to put yourself in the scene. So we know that it's been three hours of darkness, which is not, not our kind of darkness, like darkness, darkness, middle of the day, not cloudy or like it might rain, dark. And he's seen all these people around him mocking him and spitting at him and throwing at things at him and, and making fun of him and criticizing him and... And then the criminals making fun of him as well. And what does he see? Well, from the other Gospels, we see Jesus taking care of his mother. We see him praying for the people. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He, he sees him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not angry and demanding his justice. He's seeking his father. He sees this man die unlike any other man. And God reveals in his heart something beautiful. And he's able to look at it and say, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The first declaration in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has been building up to this point. The entire purpose of through the parables we've studied, through the teachings we've heard, through the encounters that we've had, through the past several months, it's because Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God. 
there's three events that happen in the Gospel of Mark that I think point this out fairly significantly. One is the baptism of Jesus in Mark 1. In Mark 1, verses 10 and 11, it says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. It's an interesting word. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, we have Jesus. Nothing's torn, but his clothes are glowing white. And we have the voice of God in the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so we have the heavens being torn open. We have enclosed, almost it's being restored in glowing white. But what happens here? Total darkness. God's not experienced his presence as a dove or as a cloud. He's felt as absent. You have God declaring, you are my son, this is my son, and here you have a Gentile, a Roman soldier, saying, he's the son of God. But you have Jesus crying out because he's heard his father's voice say, you are my beloved son with you and mine well pleased. And we hear his father's, father's voice say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And now his father is silent and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned in that moment And he uses scripture to cry out to his, in his heart. Um, in the uh, ancient Jewish world, they would usually recite like one verse or one part of something to kind of point to the bigger picture or they would usually use a, a portion for the whole of a passage. So I want to read for us Psalm 22 because Psalm 22 is, I believe what he was, he was reminded of as he was up there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And somehow in this moment, he's thinking this too. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb and made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare 
and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This poem was written a thousand years before the death of Jesus, and in his mind he's like, this is my story now. This is telling my death. The Son of God had to die. He had to experience the abandonment of his father. And unlike the centurion, we know why. So the question, the final question is, how are you going to respond? See, this entire passage is talking about the people and the way they respond to him. You have onlookers who are jeering and mocking him, who are making fun of him, who are thinking, Elijah, yeah, Elijah comes and rescues the righteous sufferers. You think it's an unjust suffering? Elijah will come. They give him a drink, which is to, like, actually make him stay awake to keep him a little bit more alert because they want him to remain in the suffering. They reject him. Then you have a centurion in the midst of all confusion, sees something that makes no sense to him, and yet he realizes this man was the Son of God. Then you have a core group of women who have been following him for a long time, all the way from Galilee up to Jerusalem to be with him during this time. And these women, it's fascinating, these women are the only people who are at the death and the burial, and as we'll find out next week, the resurrection of Christ. They're the only ones but then lastly, we have this man named Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. And Mark spends a significant amount of his time talking about Joseph's encounter. And what it says about Joseph is he says he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. And what does he do? What does he do when he sees Jesus die? He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader, which means he was a part of the body of people who got Jesus executed. Clearly, he didn't like it. He didn't believe in it. But he was, he was a secret disciple because he knew if he came out, it would ruin his reputation. It would potentially ruin his livelihood, probably ruin his family. But he sees Jesus die, and it changes everything because he took courage, and he went to Pilate, and not only is he looking at the fact that he's a Jewish leader and he's like, ah, I don't know what's going to happen here, but he goes to Pilate. And now, in that day, they would not normally have just taken bodies down. They left bodies up as long as they needed. But by choosing to go to Pilate, who is the individual who sentenced Jesus to death, and by saying, I'd like his body, Joseph is basically associating himself with an executed criminal. It's like he's waiting for the worst possible moment to say, uh, yeah, actually... I want, I'm, I want to belong to him. Can I have his body? His life's at stake. His livelihood. He risks much. But it's worth it. See, it didn't just cost him his reputation. It didn't just cost him experiencing the potential judgment of the ruler of that day, Pilate. It actually cost him financially. Like he bought a linen shroud for this. He laid him in, 
his tomb, which was not a cheap thing. Like he, it didn't matter. He was willing to give everything because he saw his Savior die. And on top of that, by taking a dead body in the day of preparation, he actually is probably keeping himself from ceremonial cleanliness to where he's no longer going to be able to worship God the next day. And it doesn't matter. He doesn't care. It's worth it. On top of that, the, uh, the role of cleaning the body and preparing it for burial was actually the role of the women. Like the women would have done that. And actually we know later that they did go prepare to do the spices and the things prepared, preparing his body. But Joseph was like, it doesn't matter. Like give them to me. I'll take, I'll take them. He takes them, he wraps them. Um, one of the scholars said that in that moment, Joseph had never been more masculine or more feminine. And he didn't care what people thought of him in that moment. He didn't care about what it was going to look like or how people were going to view him. He said, you know what? The Son of God has died. I'm willing to give everything because he saw Jesus die for him and became courageous. Because when you see Jesus die for you, you become bold. That's why my longing was that we would see this picture and not just be like, oh, I know this story, but we would see again with new eyes, the Son of God died for me. He took all of the payment upon himself. I have nothing to fear anymore. I am free. I can be bold. I can ask God, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to live? Where, where can I be courageous for you? And if you can believe it or not, that's the good life. The good life is living free and bold and courageous by seeing that Mark has been from the very beginning trying to show us he is the Son of God and his death was sufficient because of that, that you are now free and forgiven, that we can now go live the lives that he wants us to live. All the shame is gone. All the effects of sin are being undone. The things that I chose to do that are make, have been making me the person that I have become, he can undo those now. He can free me from them. He can make me not that type of person because I've been killed with him. Romans 6 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The freedom that comes with the realization that the Son of God died on the cross for you is that the sin that is in you is being undone. He's, he's freeing you from it. He wants you to be free and bold for him if you would see him. The question is, how are you going to respond with what you see? Augusta of Hippo says it this way. As they were looking on, so we too gaze on his wounds as he hangs. We see his blood as he dies. We see the price offered by the Redeemer touch the scars of his resurrection. He bows his head as if to kiss you. His heart is made bare open as it were in love to you. 
His arms are extended that he may embrace you. His whole body is displayed for your redemption. Ponder how great these things are. Let all this be rightly weighed in your mind as he was one fixed to the cross in every part of his body for you so he may now be fixed in every part of your soul. My prayer is that as you see the Son of God die for you, that if you do not know him, that you would realize that his arms are extended ready to embrace you. If you've never come to a place where you realize that Jesus died for you, that your sin is worse than you think it is, but he gave everything for you, my prayer is that you would see that today. Mark's been trying to help us to see it for the entire gospel. He wrote this so that we would believe that he is the Son of God. But if you do know Jesus, my prayer is that as you see him die for you, it would make you bold like Joseph, that you would become courageous, that there's nothing to lose. You can do all things as he leads you because he died. It's all been taken away. Your sin is being undone. It's been paid for. He's freeing you. He wants to use you. And brothers and sisters, it's why we come to this table every single week because we need to be reminded of the truth that he did it for us. He's done it all for us. We, we must come and remember that he's given it all for us. And so, if, if you don't know him, this meal is not for you. But it could be. But if you don't know him, my, my prayer is that you would Spend this time reflecting. What, what have you heard today? What is God saying to your heart? But if you don't know him, stay in your seat. But if you do know him, this is for you to remember he did it all for you, to give you the courage to live the life that he wants to live through you. Let me pray for us. Father, as we are forced to look upon the nature of the horrific grotesqueness of sin. God, I pray you be drawing our hearts to a place of amazing gratitude and understanding that you've given it all for us, that it was paid for because you were perfect and the Son of God died for us. Lord, please draw us to your heart that we would become people who are empowered to live boldly, to follow you wherever you lead. And God, our prayer is that you would give us courage. So Lord, as we come to take these elements, Lord, fill us, remind us it's already been done. And God, continue to draw us to the fact that you, you love us so much, that this is the extent you're willing to go. You wanted to be in a relationship with us. And so you came and died for us. Father, we love you. We lift all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who know Jesus, who have a relationship with him, come to the table.